0: And welcome to the unofficial second series of Redundancy Radio with me, Liv Siddle. It's kind of the unofficial second series because I only did three episodes in the first series, then it just stopped abruptly, and the reason for this is quite stupid and slightly depressing. Because in spring last year, things were kind of looking up a bit, and with my freelance work, I, I, I was doing quite well, and I, I went on a holiday to New York, during which time I recorded two interviews for Redundancy Radio, one with the creative director of the New Yorker, Nicholas Blackman, and one with a cartoonist called Emily Flake. So both interviews went really well, and I was feeling very smug and positive about the idea of coming back home and putting them out as episodes four and five. Um, then I had to go to Shanghai on uh, for work on a copywriting job quite soon after New York and as soon as I arrived in China and got into a taxi, I uh, my phone uh, slid under the seat in the taxi and, and I lost it. And so I arrived at this hotel where I was going to be staying in Shanghai for a week um, with no phone and no way of contacting anyone, people I was meant to be working with or Um, My family or my insurance, I I couldn't get on my Gmail because you can't access Gmail in in China. I I couldn't go on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I just couldn't do anything. And also um, uh, the reason I was there was to actually interview 15 or so people in in Shanghai. And I was planning on using my phone to record those interviews. So you can imagine the stress level. It was pretty much one of the the most uh, horrific, stressful weeks of my life. Um, Anyway... It kind of got worse uh, when I realised with horror that not only had I lost my phone, but I had also lost the interviews I recorded in New York with Nicholas and Emily. So I was just gutted. And so to be honest, I was so down about that and so depressed and annoyed that I just gave up on doing the podcast altogether. I didn't want to do it anymore. It just sounds so silly now, but I was so anxious and miserable back then that I just didn't really want to put myself out there or risk wasting people's time or I just I just totally gave up on it which which sucks I didn't even tell Nicholas and Emily that I'd lost the interviews because I was so embarrassed actually I think I eventually emailed Nicholas because I was scared but it's just a bit of a shit situation but then in December of that year I was going through some old emails and files and backing some stuff up and I found an email I had sent to myself containing the interview with Nicholas and I was just so happy. I was like calling people up like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it was totally the good omen that I needed to start a new series and stop being a massive baby about everything and just get on with it. Um, sadly, I do think the one the podcast with Emily is, is gone forever into the ether. So, Emily, if you're listening, which I doubt you are, I am sorry. So here we are, the lost interview with the creative director of The New Yorker, Nicholas Blackman, recorded on the 38th floor of One World Trade Center in New York. Nicholas's office has the most incredible views of the city. Up there, the air is just so crisp and the the sun kind of shines and makes these shadows on the buildings surrounding his building. That that When you look at them, it kind of looks like Chris Ware drawings or something out of a graphic novel. It's just so crisp and clear and incredible. Very distracting for the workers. And the walls of Nicholas's office are covered in doodles and drawings by him. And also by the illustrator, Christoph Niemann, who comes to visit him every now and again. I think it's very cool they get to draw on the walls and the windows. I think in my eyes, Nicholas probably has one of the coolest jobs you can get. He's the creative director of what is widely regarded to be the best magazine on the planet. And as well as being known primarily for publishing the best writing in the world, the New Yorker commissions the most talented photographers, illustrators and cartoonists. So I spoke to Nicholas about the stress of putting out a magazine once a week, how he actually landed his dream job and most importantly, what the New Yorker Christmas party looks like. Enjoy. Hello, Nicholas. How are you today?
1: Excellent. How are you?
0: I'm very happy because I'm in The New Yorker, which is like my spiritual home, um, and you come here every day. Do you still have the same feeling that I'm having right now, like excitement when you come to work every day?:
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen each time I walk through the door, so it's always an adventure, and yeah, we love to work here so
0: Great. What's your kind of daily routine like when you get to work? What do you do?:
1: I think the first thing I do is I look at the sk- well, of course first thing everyone does is check their email. And then we look at the schedule and we try to figure out what is going to be in the issue. And because the schedule's always in flux, because the news cycle is so topsy-turvy these days, um, first we try to like, get a handle on what's going to be in the magazine. And that's kind of like our first priority.
0: I wanted to also ask you, um, <laughs> how did you get this job? And I really want to find out what led you to having the job. And then what happened on the day of your interview?
1: What happened on the day of my interview? Were you nervous? Of course I was nervous. Everyone's (laughs) nervous on the day of the interview. You can't have an interview without being nervous. Um, And I think that's always a good thing because the more you want the job, then the more you interview for it. So I had been an art director at the New York Times in the book review section. And for many years, I was an art director at the Times. There, Actually, there was no creative director at... New Yorker for many, many years, and then they hired their first, they created the position of creative director, I think, only maybe in 2011 or 2012, um, when they realized that they were publishing so much on so many different platforms, they needed someone to kind of overlook the the identity of, of the magazine um, in all these different places, and so Wyatt Mitchell was the first creative director, and he was at Wired Magazine before that, and Apple hires a lot of very talented designers Um, so there's always a constant flux at the top and so thankfully because Apple took Wyatt and Wyatt went to California that created an opening at the New Yorker and I was uh, yeah lucky enough to get this job.
0: But on the day of the interview what did you wear?
1: (laughs) Same thing that I always wear which is probably a suit and a white button-down shirt that doesn't change (laughs) it's one of those yes it's it's, it's a good question you want to look sharp you don't want to look too sharp
0: what kind of things were they asking you what do you think they were trying to work out how do you think they wanted you to be what were they looking for
1: You know, it's funny because I often think back to those interviews, and I think it was like a series of interviews. It wasn't just one. It was you you come in a few times, you meet with them, and my goal was, okay, at some point I would just really love to meet with David Remnick himself. Um, And it was just a perfectly easygoing conversation. We could have been at a bar having a drink. It was very easygoing. He told me about the magazine. He told me about his family. I told him what I could about how I felt about the magazine, but it was very, I don't know, it was very casual. I mean, the first interviews leading up to that, it was more a kind of like a state of the union, a kind of explaining of where the magazine is, where the magazine is going, and um, what the responsibilities would be of a creative director. So, It was more kind of explaining that and then my trying to (laughs) sum up my history and my experience and try to figure out how I could match that. I think actually in my interview, I actually said, oh, you don't, I'm I'm not the right person for this. You actually need someone who has lots of brand identity experience. My background is more illustration. And I think that because they actually ended up choosing me was because I think that illustration plays a special role in the history of the magazine. So I think they acknowledged that by picking me, so...
0: And on the day you found out that you got the job, what did you do?
1: <laughs> uh, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was like one of those things, <laughs> those situations in which you're not allowed to jump up and scream. You're not allowed to tell anybody. I mean, I wanted to hug everybody, of course. Um, no, I remember, actually, I remember being at Dean and DeLuca's, this miserable Dean and DeLuca's in the New York Times building, getting coffee in the morning. And I received an email from David saying that he would like to welcome, he would love to have me as the creative director of The New Yorker. And I just remember I just wrote back right away, and I, I accepted on the spot. Um, and then and then I think I told my wife, and then I, it was terrible. I could not tell anyone oh for God. weeks. And that was really tricky, like figuring out like how to unroll that. Um, that was part of the fun, of course, is having this delicious secret. Um,
0: <laughs> Everyone like, why are you in such a good mood? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's going on?
1: What's wrong with you?
0: That's so good. And then in your first few weeks here, was it, you must have been quite nervous starting out in a new job, in a new place, but was it kind of like, because it's a new role, you were able to kind of come in and make it your own rather than stepping into someone else's shoes, I suppose.
1: It's This place is kind of, it's ruled by a legacy and history and there's so many um, strange customs and the way things are done. And there's such a uh, respect for precedence that actually it was the first few weeks was just like trying to figure out how it all fit together and what my role was. And I had been an art director of a section at the New York Times, so to do that and then all of a sudden become creative director is was a big jump for me. So um, yeah, it was a huge learning curve, um, and it's still. I mean, to a certain degree, it still is. I'm still trying to figure out exactly. Uh, how it all fits together.
0: A big question I've got is how something of such high quality can be produced on a weekly basis. Is that, yeah. is that the, how, how do you do that? How does that work?
1: We're all aware that there is this very high level of um, excellence that's expected from the articles and from the magazine, from the art and of course from the readers. So we're all kind of um, trying to live up to it. I mean, I think, it's really, I think the magazine is really driven by the articles mm-hmm. for the most part and the quality of the writing is extremely high. Um, and it's famous for having this exquisite writing and having these extraordinary contributors, um, writers over time that have contributed to it. So I guess what we try to do is, with the photography and with the illustration, is trying to match that and trying to rise to the same level as the writing, uh, which is often a very difficult thing to do. And that's, like, the main difference, I think, where I was at the Times, is that we would kind of come to a point where we would get the art, in a place where we liked it and then we'd publish it. Whereas here, it goes through many, many, many rounds before we actually decide that it's ready for print. Um, so that, yeah, there's a much higher level of expectation. Yeah, things bake for a really long time. They A piece, we have like a number of articles that come in and we try to get art or commission, assign an illustration for it, but we have no idea when it's going to run. So things uh-huh. can percolate for a period of a week, a month, two months, sometimes even a year before they actually run. So we have this extraordinary leeway, but we don't know exactly when something is going to, when we decide that we actually want to run it, depending on what's happening in the news cycle. Um, and I think that's one of the tricks of editing the magazine is like trying to find the right moment to run those articles that are on people's minds when they want to figure out exactly what's happening in Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Washington um, on certain issues. So. Yeah, pieces kind of like percolate and they brew for, and they distill for a really long time. Um, and the same can be true of the art. Like we'll get a, we'll spend a long time trying to get a photograph or a portrait of an artist, of, of a politician, for example, and then um, it'll just get shuffled down the schedule until it's, it's time to publish. So, so that's, that's part of, I think, of making it perfect is that we, we have so much time to work with the pieces.
0: That's so good to know. There's like a bank of stuff and you're just kind of picking stuff out of the, the bucket, as it were.
1: Kind of. And at the same time, sometimes we'll have a piece that needs to be done in a few days.
0: Do you ever commission illustrators and say you've got 24 hours?
1: Sometimes
0: mm. that happens,
1: yeah. And that's that's is, is, is that when you call
0: not. on the people who you can really rely on that you know? Or?
1: Yeah, unfortunately you just have to. Yeah. Um, as much as I would love to take risks, and we do try to take risks by trying out new illustrators and photographers, there's always when there's a lot of time, that's fine. But depending on the piece, um, yeah, we have our go-to people like Oliver Monday, who or Christoph Neiman, who can deliver very quickly in very little time, something yeah. that's um, of high quality. So,
0: so you must have a, a huge amount of illustrators that you've got great relationships with. Do you kind of just keep up to date with them all, and do they come in, or and do you kind of do you know most of them? Um, personally
1: or? Yeah. I mean, it, I think to, you know, to a large degree, yeah, I mean, a lot of them I do have a relationship with and I am friendly with, yeah. And that certainly helps. I mean, I've been in New York in the illustration design scene for a certain number of years. Yeah. So of course, like, we all kind of know each other and I'm sure the same. So, But the, the illustration scene, I feel, is exploding right now and it's mm. so global, um, which is, makes it so exciting. So there are so many illustrators and um, you know, overseas in Scandinavia or Germany that we never see. Um, so it is always changing. But yes, I mean, there's some people like Barry Blitt who've been contributing to the magazine for a number of years. Mm. And yeah, he's a wonderful character. And it's, it's great to be able to call on him a very short time and ask him to do something on politics or whatnot.
0: Cool. And you said when I saw you give that great talk at ModMag 2017... Um you, ex- you sort of described how the, the cartoonists for the magazine sort of like arrive at this time when the elevator doors are like ding and they come in and they deliver their, mm. their work, like their sketches, their kind of handmade stuff. Right. Just, just so that happens. Can you explain like what you said then just for these listeners so they can enjoy the story as well?
1: It's a pretty opaque and mysterious process to myself. <laughs> myself But on Tuesdays when I come or is it Wednesdays now when I come to the office, there are a bunch of cartoonists milling around.
0: So. What are they like?
1: Oh, they're all, they're hilarious. I mean, <laughs> even though knowing that they're cartoon, I don't know if knowing that they're cartoonists makes them hilarious or not, but they just have this, like, funny kind of, like, slightly, you can just tell they've been at their desks all week long trying to be funny, trying to draw funny punchlines and drawings, following the news. Um, and then this is their one day where they come into the office and they present it. So I don't know. They don't actually have to come to the office, but there is this tradition. And it, I think it's fun for them to see each other and... Mm um they kind of corral together in one of the small conference rooms (laughs) they mill about and i don't know what they do honestly but it's it's you know it's one of those great magical moments um
0: sounds like hell actually sitting around all day (laughs) trying to be funny
1: no it's it's the very like trying to be funny i think is a very difficult thing yeah i think it really is
0: a lot of them must be quite old
1: yeah some of them are i mean i this past week i met george booth who's been contributing to the magazine for dozen I don't know how many years um and he's I would assume he's in his 80s yeah he is qu- he's quite old I wanted yeah. to ask you as well
0: what um what really stresses you out <laughs> and what do you do when you are stressed out
1: yeah the stress happens when we're under deadline and we have pieces to close and the art has not been approved and trying to get the art approved is some Time is very difficult. I mean, the way it works here is that we're given a list of different articles that go into the magazine, and then we're kind of expected to do something with this list. We don't actually have a conversation with another adult trying to pointing us in a certain direction. We just kind of intuit what the best way to put this together is, and then we present it to editors, and the editors often present it to the writers, and, and then the fact checkers take a look at it, and everyone weighs in, and so that creates the possibility. I mean, this is. Quite not often, but sometimes um, yes, when having art trying to produce art on deadline is uh, what stresses us out. So around Thursdays are tough days. like we close throughout the week, but I think on Friday we officially close and leading up to that it can be quite stressful.
0: Wait today's Thursday. Yes, but we had a special <laughs> no absolutely right.
1: Um, we had a special issue so we closed early so we closed on Wednesday. We had a special the mind issue which is coming out. Um, cool
0: this week. Um, another question, this is from my friend Justine mm. what is the New Yorker Christmas party like?
1: <laughs> um, it's funny because I've only been here a few years so I don't know what it has has been like in the past, I mean sometimes uh, two years ago when I was first here I was at this bar called the Woolly in the Woolworth building um, and it was a bar that I'd always wanted to go to and it was very small and the New Yorker staff is massive so we were crowded all together in this room, They there were special New Yorker cocktails they devised for the evening and it was just my dream come true. It was just insanely fun. <laughs> um, and then in the more recent years, uh, we've been doing the party here in the offices of The New Yorker. So two years ago, we just did it in the conference room, and the lights were on, and there was cold pizza, and it was miserable. <laughs> well, then last year, we did it in the offices, but some editors, each editor in their office decided to mix a special cocktail. And we did this Christmas tree out of books, and it was fantastic. It was so much fun. like better than any bar could be so i mean it really it varies
0: but um. and is it true i think you said something about on fridays the cocktail trolley comes around
1: yes well i have this tradition on fridays of uh, mixing cocktails in my office
0: (laughs) that is so old school it seemed
1: like the right thing to do here at the new yorker so
0: it just seemed like the right thing to do um so we're 39 floors up is that right
1: we're on the 38th floor. 38. Yeah.
0: Have you ever seen anything weird happen out the window, like through someone else's window?
1: Sorry, I'm looking out now as if I'm going to see something <laughs> fall down from someone the Someone, like, naked or something. No, unfortunately, no, no. But the, the views themselves are just, like, so jaw-droppingly stunning that it's just gracious. And, the, you know, when the sun sets over New Jersey, it's, the light is just magical
0: here. Um, it's amazing. Um, another question I have is, um, on the day that Trump was elected, what— Was the vibe like in the New Yorker office?
1: (laughs) It was positively apocalyptic. Can you describe it? Everyone was extraordinarily glum. It was as if somebody had just died. It felt like a funeral. Everyone was, I don't know what we were wearing, but it was as if everyone was wearing in black. No one was talking to each other. No one was smiling. No one was crying either, which was odd. No one was screaming or running around. It was just this intense sense of, like living in a very kind of dangerous moment in history, I guess. Um, and the unreality of it was also, it was just a shock, I think. And I think most editors were in shock um, and didn't expect it. And I remember we quickly uh, went into, around lunchtime, we went into the conference room and we watched on television the concession speech that Hillary gave And it was one of these great moments in which the entire New Yorker staff, from fact-checkers to copy editors to editors to writers to designers, the whole web team, everyone kind of coalesced in this room to listen to Hillary give her concession speech. Um, And I think shortly after that, I think David Remnick gave a small talk to the staff. And it was just this kind of like very, that you would not want to be anywhere else. And then, throughout New York City, even afterwards, I remembered getting on the subway and going home, and there were people just crying. It was just very strange. it was a very odd moment um yeah
0: and was there a kind of i know the New Yorker has been like obviously very um i don't know how to put this it's been sort of anti- like flagrantly anti-Trump since. Was that a conscious decision that was made by the company to be like, let's let's fight it rather than ignore it? Or I mean, New York has always been political, but to really go that extra bit of being quite out there in terms of being anti.
1: I mean, I can't, you know, I'm just a designer. I can't really speak for the editorial mission of the New Yorker, but I do think that there is this sense of, we would not let, we would not, this is not a normal event and we would not normalize it by pretending this was uh, just a common, just another election. This was a special election with very um, consequential uh, results and there was the sense that we would somehow expose it as much as we had to and report on it and be relentless in our trying to explain it and understand it and understand mm-hmm. the consequences and understand what would happen. So. Yeah, in that sense, I think, um, yeah, we took it very seriously, more seriously, perhaps, than other presidencies. Um, yeah.
0: yeah, well, fair enough. <laughs>
1: so you see here, this actually, our subscriptions yeah. went through the roof after Trump was elected. So Trump's election actually was very positive for us. So that's what's known as the Trump bump. So that's a drawing of Trump's head going down on the seesaw, and then the magazine here is
0: going Oh, that's on. great. Just to explain, these are Christoph Neiman, right?
1: Yeah, so Christoph did that. Yes.
0: So, I mean, yeah, Christoph Neiman, the illustrator, has drawn all over the walls of Nicholas's office. And, yeah, it's just kind of doodles. Yeah, this is Trump putting his head down on a seesaw when the magazine's going up. There's, that's the New Yorker hand. The...
1: Yes, yeah, so that's Eustace Tilly. So our mascot is Eustace Tilly, this ridiculous 19th century dandy who has a top hat and is looking through a, a magnifying glass, a loop, um, and a butterflies. So that's what that is.
0: Are you allowed to let Christoph Neiman draw all over your walls?
1: Yes, only Christoph. Christoph and I are the only people who have access to these to these walls. So whenever Christoph, we have a tradition, whenever he comes from Berlin to visit, we get out some Sharpies and we do some drawings on the wall.
0: It's very cool. He's the best.
1: He's, he's wonderful. He's great.
0: Um, I know you haven't got much time, but I just wanted to ask you um, a little bit more about yourself and how you got into this. When you were sort of like 20 years old, and you were looking ahead at your career. I assume you are probably at right. art college or something. Mm-hmm. What were you, what, what did you think was going to happen? What did you, what was your kind of dream, and what did you think, what route were you going to go down?
1: I always knew, I mean, I was, I was always clear that I wanted to do something graphic design related, or com- I was passionate about comics, and so I wanted, so I did my own comic book, No Zone, um, which I published off and on for a number of years, and I was always fascinating. I thought the, the be-all and end-all of coolness was to be, a freelance illustrator yeah. perhaps being a comic strip artist and a freelance <laughs> illustrator would be like the ultimate cool so and, and, and finding it very difficult to just start out and be an illustrator I started asking other illustrators to kind of contribute and put together this this fanzine um, which I put out so that kind of like steered without any kind of like clear sense of where I was going that's how I started
0: how are you putting out a fanzine were you making it really yourself how many copies and how are you distributing it and who was in it
1: uh, yes. Yeah, so those are all questions that I didn't think to ask myself at the time <laughs> that I was making it. <laughs> so I didn't actually, I didn't go to design school. I just had a kind of liberal arts education. I went to Oberlin College, and then afterwards I decided to do this magazine. So putting this magazine together, really I was, uh, each one was like a steep learning curve. So I was learning more and more about the, the distribution process, how many copies to print with each issue. Mm. Um, so I, at the beginning, I had no idea what I was doing. And then with each issue i only did nine or ten of them um i got a little more savvy about how it works
0: yeah that's the best way isn't it to go into something being like i don't know what i'm doing i mean this podcast is a good example of that mm-hmm. <laughs> which i made it <laughs> because i was like i'll just do this for no reason that's and without knowing how to do it
1: that microphone you look extremely polished it's <laughs> right? ridiculous yeah. microphone
0: yeah, <laughs> um and what is the worst job you've ever had stretching back to teenage years if if, if so be it
1: the worst job I ever had was I worked I had this I, I really love architecture and so and I was kind of into restoration. So I worked with this company that was renovating a building in Fort Green in the nineteen nineties and it was a very dicey time in that area of Brooklyn and I <clears throat> had to get up at five in the morning to get to work at six mm. and I worked in, in the this one building, this nineteenth century building that I was working on used to be a chocolate factory and there was a fire in it and the whole building was black and I would just come home and it'd blow my nose and it'd just be black. It was like Ew. working in a coal mine. It was just the hardest work ever. Ew. So construction. <laughs> 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 Trying to, and I'm a skinny guy and I had to use a, um, one of these jackhammers. It was a lot of fun.
0: That sounds terrible. It,
1: it really was. It was not, it was not
0: good. <laughs> and is there anything, is there like a dream job in the future that you want to get to or are you quite happy for now?
1: no I think this is really each time I always joke that after having worked at the New York Times which I absolutely love the only other place I would ever want to work would be the New Yorker and so those are the two hey nice one yes (laughs) you just nailed life (laughs) not quite but nearly
0: Um, I'll let you get back to work I think that's that's enough and thank you so much and just well done for being so great and doing a dream job my pleasure (laughs) okay bye
1: thank you bye bye
0: Redundancy Radio is produced and recorded by me, Liv Siddle, and the audio is edited by Caroline Whiteley. The jingle is written and recorded by the one and only Wesley Gonzalez.